Angela Yarber and her wife Elizabeth and their child left their jobs, their careers, their home, and landed on the big island in a tiny house. And even though we have a whole host of critiques about the tiny house movement, we still like the overall goal of it, to live simply, to reduce your carbon footprint, and to kind of um, realign your philosophy with the way that you're living. Angela Yarber is the creator of the Holy Women Icons Project. The work is, for me, very enlivening and meaningful um, to be able to research these revolutionary women throughout history and mythology around the world, and then to kind of give traditional iconography a folk feminist twist by painting them and then writing about them, because their stories are so amazing and so underheard that uh, they deserve to be told and celebrated and lauded and stained in glass and hung in every cathedral. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click donate. For the Pacifica Radio Network, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schock. This is the last of my five-part series on revisioning Christianity. We began the series with an icon of anastasis, Christ rising up from death and pulling all humanity with him. That tradition of iconography continues, but with a twist, a folk feminist twist. I think that for many people, especially if you're not trained in traditions that have iconography, uh, for me, they're very intimidating. Also, I think the majority of icons you know, are of straight men. They also are very whitewashed because a lot of these men historically would have been men of color, but are not portrayed that way sometimes in iconography. And so I want to subvert that. And I also do it in a way that it's a folk style. So it makes it a little bit more accessible for folks. I think, I hope. Angela Yarber has a PhD in religion. She's also a pastor. Now she and her wife, Elizabeth, and their child have left their careers behind, but not their vocations. Angela is the creator of the Holy Women Icons Project. She wraps up my series on revisioning Christianity. Angela Yarber invites us not just to revision Christianity, but to queer the church. Because when I think of queering something, I think of subverting and dismantling all that oppresses. So a really intersectional approach that it doesn't just deal with sexuality, but also race and ethnicity, class, gender, ability, kind of across the board to dismantle it all to make it a truly inclusive place that is both inclusive and expansive. And so this kind of queer Holy Women Icons project that we're working on, the art side of it is I have a list of 30 women They're all queer women of color who I either have painted or am in the process of painting and writing about their stories because they have shaped our faith and our culture in ways that are often not lifted up. Dr. Yarber was on Progressive Spirit last year. Welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be back with you. Since we talked in January 2017, a lot has happened, including a move from, I think when I talked to you then, you were in Vilas. North Carolina, which wasn't far from where I was in Johnson City, Tennessee. But now you've moved where everyone from Vilas goes next, and that's Hawaii. 
Of course. <laughs> so Vilas was the uh, yeah. Go ahead. The end of um, my my wife and toddler and I traveled full time for almost two years, and so the very end of that time, I was the author and theologian in residence at a little church there, and that is where we last talked. We ended up that travel time by relocating to the Big Island, so it's been a, a really wild, you know, six thousand mile journey. <laughs> That's an amazing journey. I want to talk about that journey, but before I even talk about that one, you also did a lot of journeying around the country, um, staying in different, uh, well, I don't know, camping, basically. Tell me about that. Sure. So in summer of 2015, after a long period of discernment and planning and uh, fear. My wife and I resigned from our jobs as professors and pastors. We sold our home. We hitched our hopes to a camper and decided that we wanted to search for kind of what Wendell Berry calls the grace of the world, that we had kind of dedicated all of our adulthood to the so-called study of the grace of God. And that's something that I've kind of left behind. And so we traveled throughout the continental U.S., for almost two years in our camper, being campground hosts, volunteers, going all over the place. We also spent three months on the Big Island doing a work exchange, which is when we kind of fell in love with the place and decided this is where we would relocate. So amidst all of that, I ended up right, have written a book about it, about this wild journey of a queer family like ours. It was literally the day that we left that the Supreme Court ruled gay marriage legal. Um, throughout the country. And, you know, two years of travel that ended with my brother's death after we moved to Hawaii. And so it was kind of discovering the beauty and the travesty of the American landscape, the hospitality and the discrimination that we faced as queer people all over the U.S. And it was a really heartwarming and heartbreaking, to sound a little bit cliche, experience that that changed our world and that shaped, I hope, my child who was 18 months through three and a half years old doing this. And that that's kind of my child's childhood. Um, and that really excites me. What a fun age to do that with, right? It, I mean, it really was. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lie. There are parts that are really uh, exhausting and challenging. So multiple cross-country road trips with a child that age and potty training and all of that glamorous stuff that people think of was challenging, but it was also really amazing that, you know, we left with a kiddo who, who maybe only had eight words and it was within a week of being in rural Vermont as campground hosts that his language kind of exploded and developmentally, it was just really amazing. And I, they say often here in Hawaii that keiki are the great equalizer. Keiki is the word for child in Hawaiian. And so everywhere we went, even when there was homophobia and resistance, when you have a child and they're playing on the playground with another child, it helps uh, cross some boundaries and bring people together in really beautiful ways. My daughter and her wife live in, in uh, northeast Tennessee, and we have a granddaughter now, Pippa, who's just a year and six months as we're recording this interview. Congratulations. And, and, and thank you. And that's it's a similar thing, I think, that they have. I mean, they're, they're both like you, uh, assertive, tough, knowledgeable, but also sensitive to all of the, the nonsense uh -huh. that's out there. But, but, but there is an aspect of being a family that, that there's a strength there in dealing there with is. some of that. 
And I imagine that they have experienced living in Tennessee. Some of the interesting things that we experienced while traveling, I think a classic example is that um, when we were in rural southern Virginia for a month as campground hosts, there were people who were absolutely lovely to us. And then we experienced some outright homophobia, but also a lot of the underhanded microaggressions and people doing all kind of mental gymnastics to not make us be a family. Mm -hmm. So I had multiple occasions where people asked if I was the grandmother. Um, I'm only a month older than my wife. (laughs) And (laughs) twice, twice, we had two different people upon learning that we are both traveling full time, we have this toddler, um, say, well, isn't that nice that the two of y'all are traveling together with your baby while your husbands are gone in the military? That's a whole narrative right there. (laughs) Right, that they created in their minds because they couldn't conceptualize that we were married and that this was our child. And so we have a lot of funny and irritating stories like that across the country from my wife being called daddy repeatedly by a campground owner to every time we pulled into a campground, the person always asked me when my husband was going to back up the trailer. It was a, a wild, but a, a lot of uh, welcoming kindness, too, that we experienced. And then when you tell them, hey, and we're both PhDs uh, in <laughs> <laughs> And you, that, this is the amazing story about the two of you, Angela and Elizabeth. You both, you both really changed. I mean, you, you just took off, changed careers, didn't you? We did. We did. And it's interesting because I remember so many times before we decided to do this where we were you know, getting ready for bed or just talking about our lives. And I would be reading something, you know, as um, silly as like an Oprah magazine. And there's a story in it about a woman who up and changes her career and travels and all these things. And whenever she offers advice, whoever this person is, they always say, you just have to do it. And I turn to my wife always and say, well, how can you just do it? Like, what about your mortgage, your vocation, your child? And Along the way, I I really clung to this phrase by Freya Stark, who I've painted, who was an intrepid traveler, and she said, it's the beckoning that counts, not the clicking latch behind you. And somewhere along the way, I realized that these clicking latches of vocation, job, parenting, a mortgage, that those were holding us back from living into who we really wanted to be as a family, as individuals, and into the world that we want to create. And so we decided to clicked that latch quite literally by selling our home and quitting our jobs and deciding to live a lot simpler. And so we don't even make a quarter of the income that we used to make, but our expenses are monumentally less because we live in this little tiny off-grid, tiny house. Because we're off-grid, we have no monthly payments that we have to make and things like that. So just choosing to, to dismantle our lives and subvert the American dream is what we decided to do, and it so far has worked out really beautiful for us. <laughs> so tell me about this tiny house. How tiny is it? Now, I have to be honest in saying I don't think it's that tiny. It was tiny enough for us to build it with the television show Tiny House Nation, but the house itself is 500 square feet, and then we have an enormous lanai. Um, it's 20 by 12 feet hooked onto the back. So lanai is the Hawaiian word for a porch. So that is the majority of our living space is outside on a covered lanai. And you were on the television show. Tell me about that too. That's right. So when we were out in Hawaii and we decided to purchase an acre of land, we were always um, fans of the television show, Tiny House Nation. And even though we have a whole host of critiques about the tiny house movement, 
we still like the overall goal of it to live simply to reduce your carbon footprint and to kind of um, realign your philosophy with the way that you're living. So I joked and said, well, why, you know, surely people apply to be on the show or they have casting calls. And my wife thought this was hilarious that I would even think it's possible and said, well, you know, look it up. If, if you find it possible, then do it. And I'd support that, but I'm not going to put any effort there. So I looked it up and lo and behold, they did have a casting call. So I answered a lot of the questions and emailed it in. This was in winter of 2017. And then um, we're traveling full time. And in July of that summer, I get a random phone call this was all 2016. Let me rewind that back from someone from Tiny House Nation. And they wanted to film an interview and put together a little video clip to send to the network. And before we knew it, you know, we were finding a contractor and getting things started and, and filming with them last January. Uh, now, is that uh, been broadcast? It has. It was broadcast this summer of 2017. So I think it's available through Tiny House Nation, and um, you can get that through iTunes or Amazon, different formats like that. I don't know if you can find it anywhere for free. You might have to pay 99 cents. <laughs> All right. Tell me again before. I, I'm still interested in your travel log here. You make it to Hawaii. Now, how did you happen to discover? Uh, I've never even been. So how did you find it? Neither had I. <laughs> so when we decided to do this, this travel period of our lives, um, my wife was setting up a lot of campground hosting gigs, which is basically where you go into a national park or national forest and you do things like sweep out pit toilets, clean out fire pits, pick up trash in exchange for free camping. Plugging that in is your cool, by the way. I, I, I didn't know that till I read that in oh your blog gosh. about that. What a neat it's thing. It's so amazing. So it's interesting because whenever we interviewed with places, they would always say, now we're not supposed to ask about your age. But, you know, when we're looking at your resume, we're assuming that you're not retired yet. And we're like, no, we're not retired because it's usually folks who are retired will do this full time. And they travel around the country, the continental United States, and um, campground host in different locations. And then usually for most retired folks by winter, they usually end up in either California, Arizona, or Florida to go somewhere warm. But when we were planning all of this, I just had my heart set on spending some time in Hawaii. I never been here before, but wanted to. So I found a place where we could do a work exchange um, where I was kind of like a scholar in residence and teaching yoga. My wife was um, going to be doing some health coaching and working on the farm. Uh, long story short is that we got to that situation and it was an utter disaster, a complete nightmare involving like dengue fever and drugs. And so we left within half an hour <laughs> and had to find something else. But it ended up being really beautiful that three months here on Big Island and on a whim, we looked up cost of living and were actually surprised that on Big Island in particular, not the other islands, and in specific areas like where we live, it was a lot more affordable than we imagined. And so we had hoped at the end of this travel year to maybe resettle somewhere in the North Carolina mountains, but that was too expensive for us. And so instead, hmm. we ended up in Hawaii, <laughs> which usually blows people's minds. Now I want to turn our focus here to uh, some of your important work. You mentioned your vocation. You switched your vocation, but your vocation is really come alive in these amazing icons that you are painting and showing. The last time we talked was January 2017. We talked about your book that you published, I think, in 2014 about holy women icons. And then you had a That's bunch right. since then. Since then, since last year, how many have you done? Oh, gosh. 
I think that when I last spoke with you, I was somewhere between 60 and 70 holy women yeah. icons that I mm-hmm. painted. And now I just finished painting my 92nd uh, last night, Marsha P. Johnson. The Holy Women Icons Project, I, I love the way that you put it, that it has come alive, that the voca- vocation hasn't ended, it's shifted and come alive in a really beautiful way. So the Holy Women Icons Project isn't just a book or writing, it isn't just the artwork, but we're hoping that it's a movement. We've turned it into a 501c3 nonprofit. We have three really exciting programs that we're launching this year, and the work is for me, very enlivening and meaningful um, to be able to research these revolutionary women throughout history and mythology around the world, and then to kind of give traditional iconography a folk feminist twist by painting them and then writing about them, because their stories are so amazing and so underheard that uh, they deserve to be told and celebrated and lauded and stained in glass and hung in every cathedral and entered into every textbook all over the world because that's how amazing these women are. And I have to confess my sin also put on a church bulletin now and then. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yeah. yeah. (laughs) It was um, the Exodus and Miriam's story. And it's so many people come up to me and say, I love that bulletin. I says, well, yeah, check out Angela Yarber, Holy Women Icons. Oh, thank thank you. I'm looking right now. I've got your page up here and I'm looking at Santa Muerte. Now, Okay, from the shadows, she offers safe passage, her heart protecting the outcast, ensuring la muerta igualdad. Tell me about that one. Sure. So, and that one actually, as I'm talking to you, is right behind my head. Uh, (laughs) um, So, Santa Muerta is part of the Holy Women Icons of Grief project, which started upon uh, the death of my brother in March. He was an addict and died of addiction. I was having a difficult time coping, I think, as as most people would when they lose a family member or any person that they love. And I found the Western tradition uh, lacking and started doing research about grief and about grief goddesses and women associated with grief and learned that really death care and grieving has shifted so much since the turn of the 20th century in the United States, that death care and grieving has been taken away from the hands of women in the home and placed often into the hands of men in power. The the industry, has it's become a, a commercial enterprise that death has been capitalized as a consumer good. And so I started researching all of these different goddesses, and this one, Santa Muerte, that you mentioned um, is incredibly important to me because I have Mexican heritage in my family. And she is this um, folk goddess who um, accompanies people into the afterlife and helps with safe passage. And what makes her so amazing is that she's often associated with the outcast or the outlaw um, with LGBTQ queer folks, that she offers equality and death for everyone, but specifically to those who might not otherwise get it. So I think here in the U.S., for example, of how costly the enterprise of death is, that if you um, work with a funeral home, that uh, caskets, renting out space, all of these things are so expensive that my family couldn't afford this upon the death of my brother, and he was merely cremated. And so I think that people are often taken advantage of financially. They're told that it's most dignified to do X, Y, and Z, but X, Y, and Z can cost upwards of tens of thousands of dollars. And so you have someone like Santa Muerte who says it doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, and 
and does really revolutionary things in helping people grieve no matter what, but especially when that grief is seen as taboo. For example, of my brother who died from addiction, I think of people who are grieving those who have died because of suicide, abortion and miscarriage, the death of someone that you are estranged from. So I think of a lot of queer folks who have had family members disown them or tell them that they're bound for hell. And then when that family member dies, the queer person is still left trying to grapple and cope and grieve. And that's really complicated. And I think that some of these grief goddesses like Santa Muerte allow for the complexity in grieving, that it's not as neat and tidy as showing up with casserole on day two and then not following up ever again. Um, and, and I think specifically for Westerners and for Christians that that's often what happens. I know I have been enlivened by the stories a lot of these grief goddesses, and it's given me handles for my grieving, a place to be held in my grief. My deepest condolences to you about Carl. Thank and you. My son, Zachary, suicided five years ago. And so when you were talking about no place for that grief to happen uh, it, or, or however, the complexities of that, it, it, is, it is all over the place. And these yeah. icons, what, what do they do? Well, they, they um, I want to say affirm in, in some sense, my own, ex validate. Okay, maybe that's what I want to say. Validate the experience of, of my grief. First, I'm so sorry about your son. And I think that that's one of the most challenging deaths to mourn is that of a child and, and through suicide. And that's something that we so often won't talk about um, and don't have tools. And so to hear that some of these icons validate your experience, that's precisely what we want to do is for people to have spaces to be affirmed and validated in their grief and, and tools for coping and being held and knowing that wherever they are in their grief, whether it's rage or weeping or, or comfort or wherever it might be, that there, there are spaces for that in our hearts and our minds and in our bodies. You didn't have a lot of goddesses of grief, as you put it, before, before you had the experience of losing Carl. T tell me about how you went through that process, if you don't mind of creating an icon after losing Carl? So I wanted to say first, before I answer your question, to simply say thank you that you are uttering Carl's name. That over the past year, one of the hardest things has been that people don't dare speak of him or don't say his name again. And so to hear that, I, I believe strongly, and I think this is tied to Santa Muerta's story, that um, those who have died live on in our memories. And every time we speak their name, their death is not uh, final in some ways. So I realized when he died that even though I have painted a lot of goddesses and a lot of women who have experienced grief, like Isadora Duncan lost both of her children. I had painted Guan Yin, who places the souls of the departed into the lotus flower. So there are definitely ones that deal with grief in some way, but none where that was the primary focus. And so as an academic, I needed to research something because that was my way of coping. So I began researching all of these different women and goddesses associated with grief and also crowdsourcing, reaching out to a lot of other feminists and saying, who are the goddesses that have provided you a balm when you're grieving? And I've had the privilege of hearing so many really powerful stories. I think in particular, I was looking at Norse goddesses, which I had never painted because my brother was kind of into Norse mythology a little bit. And I knew about Frigga. Um, who lost her son, Balder, and my mother now has Frigga hanging up in her home. 
But I had never heard of Borghild, and a friend told me about Borghild because she was a Norse goddess whose brother was murdered. And so mm. she kind of dedicated her life to avenging, avenging his death and ended up poisoning and killing his murderer. And normally that's a story that's just a bit too violent for my taste. But having grown up with my brother who experienced a lot of bullying, who was um, both a perpetrator and a victim of violence throughout his life, and I remember, you know, being like 14 or 15 years old and on Halloween he got jumped and his bag of candy stolen and someone kind of beat him with a, a padlock. And um, I found out who that was. And then I, big sister, tried to take care of it. And never have I, um, I'm a pacifist. I'm not usually one for yelling at other people. But um, when, when people mess with my brother, like I get why Borgild <laughs> sought uh -huh. out the one who murdered him. And, and this is a myth, of course, but I found a lot of um, power and comfort in researching her story and in painting her that here is the story of a woman who lost her brother. And that grief was so profound that she dedicated her life to finding the man who killed him. And I think that there are a lot of myths and legends like that, that no matter what your experience is with grief, there are these different goddesses that can resonate with you or connect with you and your story in some kind of powerful way. And I think because our, our grief here in the West is so commodified and stifled, that the more stories that we can learn like this, the more our grief can become more holistic and and less stifled, that we that we can be given the the space and the permission to grieve in whatever way our heart and mind and body needs. You know, I was just uh, a previous interview uh, just aired that I had with uh, someone to talk about the DSM five. You know, the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual number five, and yes. uh, which I didn't know about half of the contributors or more are from the pharmaceutical industry, um, and and the, and the problems that can make. But one of the things is that it used to be that you know, okay, you take a pill for depression or anxiety. Well, okay, well, it used to have a bereavement exception, but now with the DSM five, nope, you can cure bereavement with a pill. Oh, jeez, so, that's um, yeah, that's so where disheartening. it's become. <laughs> I mean, because when you're talking about the medicalized, the middle, medical industrial complex, perhaps we can talk about yes. uh, that wants to get us over grief as fast as we can and back into the workforce, right? Take yes. a pill to get there. This it's it's so dehumanizing. Um, it and I is. Not understand. I know I'm not talking about medical. I'm, I'm certainly compromised in all of these things about understand medication and whatever, but nonetheless, there's, there's something behind all of that. That's that your icons are far more humane. Thank you for that. And, and I do think, I mean, certainly I agree with you that there are times where we, we need medication, right? Yes. Um, but we also need a lot of other tools. So it might be, you know, there's been amazing work done with yoga and movement being a form of releasing stress and trauma, or uh, even something as seemingly mundane as coloring, shameless plug for my Holy Woman Icons contemplative coloring book, that there are other practices that we can do to aid us in our grief. And that if a workplace or a friend or a family member thinks that we just need to suck it up and move on, to me, that's the most unhealthy thing that we can do, that we need spaces to scream and wail and be angry. And, and I remember the day my brother died, um, I'm a very embodied person. And so I went for a run and I'm not a fast runner. It's a, almost laughable. And I just 
you know, was running as hard as I could so that I could feel something besides grief and sadness so that, you know, my heart could race, my body and my legs could be screaming at me to slow down, but I didn't want to slow down because I wanted to feel something. And I think that our bodies can help enliven and awaken our grief in ways that sometimes our minds and hearts can't. And, and I think that some of these goddesses give us those practices and a lot of other cultures and wisdom traditions, that's a, a part of their grieving practice. You know, like in ancient Hebrew funeral practices, you would literally hire women to wail and dance during the funeral procession because you had to do that. And we need more wailing and more dancing <laughs> in order to be holistic, enlivened people. My guest is Angela Yarber. She's the creator of the Holy Women Icons Project. More to come. Stay with us. I'm John Schock, and this is Progressive Spirit. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen, and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show. And be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. Angela Arbor is my guest. We're talking about the Holy Women Icons Project. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Schuck. Her website is holywomenicons.com. She is a minister, uh, uh, has a degree, a scholar in, in religion and art. And so that that's also, there's theory behind this too. Uh, I, as I look at your icons, many of them come from a personal place, as you mentioned, your own grief. You are in all of them in, in some ways, aren't you? And 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 then some of them are, are, are come because people have requested them. Is that right? Tell me a little bit about how you decide or, or, or learn about the, the various uh, figures that you're going to paint. Sure. So the project started almost a decade ago, and it was um, the season of, of Lent. And I had been uh, commissioned to paint a triptych which is a three-piece work of art with a series of other artists on the theme, The Many Faces of Jesus. And so I knew immediately that I wanted to paint uh, Jesus Sophia. So I did this triptych of Sophia. And in that process, this was prior to Lent beginning because the exhibition was up throughout the season. I decided that I wanted my discipline for the coming Lent to be to research and paint one woman per week as an icon, giving it a folk feminist twist. And by the end of Lent, I realized, wow, I have this list of, you know, over a hundred women and I've only painted six. So it's kind of became this lifelong project. And I'll be honest, at the beginning, a lot of them were women from the Judeo-Christian tradition, and that has expanded to encompass all of the wisdom traditions. And then I've, um, I haven't left uh, religion entirely in these, but I've also really started exploring women from history and mythology that might not be tied directly to religion, but whose stories teach women and all humanity about their innate holiness that dwells within us. And that by learning about these revolutionary stories, whether it is Dolores Huerta or Frida Kahlo or Maya Angelou, that learning about their stories not only teaches us about our innate worth, but it also teaches people how to have resilience in the face of discrimination and oppression. 
And, and also just reminds us there are a lot of really amazing revolutionary women who have done earth-shaking things whose stories we haven't heard. And we're doing history and religion and art a disservice by not celebrating those stories. You have projects coming up in 2018. And this is related to what you were just saying, revolutionary girls. And I'm reading from uh, the quotation on your website, exposing adolescent girls and boys to some of the women from history and myth who've shaped our world without receiving the credit, proving that they too can become revolutionary leaders. So tell us about uh, adolescent girls and, and the struggle there for finding what role models, self-confidence. How did this project come to be? And what do you hope to get out of this? Well, interestingly, I've used Holy Women Icons as a college course, um, both for undergraduates and graduates, a, a class called Women, History, and Myth. And I don't know why it didn't dawn on me <laughs> until the past year, but I was meeting with uh, a local person in Hawaii who runs a program that mentors young girls. And she said, have you ever thought about teaching this to adolescent girls? And it, was, it wasn't an aha moment. It was a duh moment because I've worked mm. with adolescents for a long time. And so decided to create a curriculum for, for girls and boys, but focusing more on girls ages 11 through 14, because there has been uh, studies that show that that age, the confidence of adolescent girls drops dramatically, kind of at the onset of puberty, that prior to that, a lot of girls think that they can be and do anything, think that they're just as smart and strong as a boy. And then around this age, their confidence plummets. They see that they're most often judged by the way they look rather than what's in their mind and in their heart. And also they're entering into middle school and high school and studying history. And most history books are pretty devoid of women's stories, definitely devoid of the stories of women of color. And so the majority of the women from history that we focus on and mythology are the stories of really revolutionary women, predominantly women of color and queer women, to help empower young girls, to help them realize that their history is also represented in history, and to develop emotional intelligence and resilience. And so we've launched this. We hope eventually it will be international. We can have online curriculum for everyone. But we've launched it in person here in Puna, Hawaii, which is where I live, because Hawaii County is the poorest county in the state. It's also the most racially and ethnically diverse county in the nation. And then the Puna district is the poorest district within this poorest county. And so the majority of the girls here are marginalized and underserved in so many ways because of poverty, because of living in a very rural area where a lot of people don't even have access to clean drinking water here, and where the majority of girls are racially and ethnically minorities. For example, tomorrow morning, I'll be going to this great group of sixth graders, <laughs> something I never really thought that I'd be doing and focusing on amazing women of color throughout the world. So they're focusing on geography right now. So I've got women from the majority of our continents, an opportunity to learn about Pachamama in the Andes or Frida Kahlo in Mexico or uh, Sarasvati in India, and to be able to see reflections of who they are in iconography, but also throughout history and mythology in ways that I hope are empowering, inspiring, and enlivening and help embolden these young girls to hold their heads a little higher and say, well, if she's done it and she's done it, then I can do it too. Now, are these icons that you're showing them, icons that you've created? Are there icons? Yes. Okay. 
Um, so these are icons that I've created. There's always more on the list. And every time I teach, I always ask them at the end of the time, who are the revolutionary icons that you want to lift up? And of course, being here in Hawaii, oftentimes um, women from Hawaiian mythology, who I've painted a lot of, or Queen Liliuokalani and others that I have yet to paint, but that are on the list, but there's so, only so many hours in the day for painting. <laughs> <laughs> painting, is that something that comes natural to you? I'm not sure. Um, I'm not trained. I mean, I took a couple classes in college in painting. And what I hope with my painting, my work, is that it, it makes iconography a bit more accessible. Because I think that for many people, especially if you're not trained in traditions that have iconography, uh, for me, they're very intimidating. I think of looking at Christ Pentocrator, for example, and there, for me, there is nothing about it that is comforting. Also, I think the majority of icons, you know, are of straight men. They also are very whitewashed because a lot of these men historically would have been men of color, but are not portrayed that way sometimes in iconography. And so I want to subvert that. And I also do it in a way that it's a folk style. So it makes it a little bit more accessible for folks, I think, I hope. And so I, I would say that um, it comes naturally to me in the sense that I enjoy doing it, that I find it very enlivening, that I would even say it is a devotional practice. I think that my work has gotten better over the years. It has space to get better. So I would never claim to be a fine artist. I am a folk artist. And I hope that makes the iconography and the artwork more accessible to more people. I think it does. I think that's that's the, that's uh, part of the appeal of it. And uh, if you haven't seen the icons, uh, well, it's hard to see them on the radio, but we can describe uh, a heart is really makes up the main body. Tell me about that. Sure. So... Interestingly, when I first started researching kind of women's spirituality, feminist spirituality, and their images, if an art historian were to do a formal analysis of most feminist artwork and do a formal analysis of, like, Playboy, the analysis would be quite similar in that breasts and hips and women's bodies are often emphasized because I think a lot of folks in feminist spirituality are trying to reclaim that and say that this is holy and beloved, and that's valuable. But the formal analysis, nevertheless, would be the same. And I think that for many women, I would say breasts and hips do not a woman make. And so I wanted to subvert that. And so instead of really having a torso, the majority of my icons, the heart expands to engulf the majority of the body and sometimes the majority of the canvas. And then the cry of each woman's heart is written poetically across yeah. the heart to try to illustrate that what dwells within our hearts and minds is more important than the shapes of our bodies, that women come in various shapes and sizes. And what's most important is uh, the interior, the character or the heart. Angela Yarber is my guest. She is a PhD in religion. She's the founder and executive director of the Holy Women Icons Project. You also have a project coming up called Queer Spirituality Resources. According to the website you have here, it says queer people are still more subject to family rejection, violence, and workplace discrimination than the general population. And for queer people of faith, finding a spiritual home can be time-consuming, draining, and even traumatizing task. And, and I can imagine that. I, 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 Even the churches I've served, and even more light churches, I still worry, to put it mildly. When queer people come to church, I hope they're going to not get too many microaggressions today. I appreciate you using the term microaggressions. I know we talked about that last time with the book I wrote with Cody Sanders, Microaggressions in Ministry, because I think that you're right. There are 
there are myriad types of churches, but for the sake of time, we have those who are not open and affirming, which means that they have no statement of affirmation to LGBTQ folks, and those who are open and affirming. So I know if I were going to to go to a church, if it's not open and affirming, I know how to defend myself and how to walk in to know, you know, most people here think that I'm an abomination and that I'm a sin and I'm bound for hell. And then if I go to an open and affirming church, what I'm expecting is for all of my queerness to be celebrated. And I would hope for worship and ministry to be queer itself. But in reality, that is not the case with most open and affirming churches, that it's one step to say that you're affirming and that is good. I do not want to diminish that. It's needed. But I would say that most open and affirming churches still have a whole lot of work to do to address those microaggressions and to make their work and ministry be truly queer. And this crosses all religious traditions, all denominations, because when I think of queering something, I think of subverting and dismantling all that oppresses. So a really intersectional approach that it doesn't just deal with sexuality, but also race and ethnicity, class, gender, ability, kind of across the board to dismantle it all to make it a truly inclusive place that is both inclusive and expansive. And so this kind of queer Holy Women Icons project that we're working on, the art side of it is I have a list of 30 women. They're all queer women of color who I either have painted or am in the process of painting and writing about their stories because they have shaped our faith and our culture in ways that are often not lifted up. And as I mentioned earlier, these stories need to be stained in glass, inserted in every textbook. And people who are queer and queer women of color in particular need to be able to look out and see reflections of themselves in worship spaces that they go. To be the lone one in a worship space is very othering, whether it is being the only person of color, whether it's being the only queer person, or having these intersectional identities. For me, that's why painting and telling the stories of queer women of color is so important, because not only are they women and people of color and queer, they're all of these identities. And I think that sometimes we silo people's identities off into separate spheres rather than nurturing and honoring every part of them. How is this project, the Queer Spirituality Resource, how, how, how will people access it? There's obviously the artwork, these 30 women. We, earlier this year, last year, launched online retreats that people can access at holywomenicons.com. And we have a, a whole variety of those. All of them include different queer women, but we want to develop one that is specifically a queer spirituality retreat that draws upon women from myriad traditions. And so each day of the retreat, you have an image of a, a queer woman. Um, you have quotes from her, a little uh, reflection about her life, and then questions for contemplation, ritual exercises to do. So that's something that everyone could access online. We also are creating different worship resources for clergy and churches to be able to use and then implement into worship to help queer their worship. It's helpful for clergy. You know this, and I, serving churches for 14 years, know that sometimes during summer or during a particular season, it's helpful to have someone say, here's a great theme you could use, and here are all the resources so that you can put your time into pastoral care or whatever it might be as a clergy person. So to kind of devise that for folks, to say, here's kind of a package deal, to be able to have worship resources, sermon prompts, artwork, liturgies, uh, original music that can enliven your worship in queer and subversive ways. And then the final thing is that we're creating a gathering space here on Hawaii Island. So part of moving here and building our tiny house 
was that's just the first step in creating a little off-grid intersectionally eco-feminist retreat center. So we're looking and hoping to raise the funds through grants and fundraising to buy the acre next door and to build multiple little Ohana houses. Ohana is the Hawaiian word for family for retreatants to stay in those little places. And then a nice big gathering space that functions as a gallery, a studio, a yoga space, a library, a meeting house, so that it can be a space that's multi-purposed. But I think having experimental retreats for locals fusing queer spirituality with Hawaiian spirituality. We have a rich history of queerness and Hawaiian mythology and Hawaiian culture, um, but also a space for people who are from the mainland or anywhere in the world to come and be nurtured and enlivened. And uh, Are you accepted well in Hawaii as queer couple, queer family? I think that this area where I live now is a lot more progressive than other places that I've lived, um, the big island, but it it also has some pretty conservative pockets too. Catholicism is the, the largest religion here, but it is a pretty diverse community in the sense that there are a whole host of different religious traditions and cultures all coming together really beautifully. But in Hawaiian culture historically, there are a lot of really beautiful tenants. So we often lift up aloha because that's been another thing that has been commercialized and commodified, kind of baptized by missionaries who came and colonized the islands. Um, but there are a lot of other really beautiful Hawaiian virtues like pono or righteousness, um, the mana or spiritual power. And one that I think resonates a lot with queer folks is the notion of the mahu, which Janet Mock has written about really beautifully. She's a transgender activist who grew up on Oahu and is, I believe, half Kanaka, which is Hawaiian. But this notion of a mahu kind of translates as third gender. So it's not the same mm. as someone being trans, but someone who might um, be gender non-binary or might identify as both male and female. And so there are spaces for this already embedded really beautifully in Hawaiian culture and history and mythology. But that has been strategically erased by uh, white Christian missionaries and colonizers. And so reclaiming that and relifting that up is something that as a Haole or white person here in Hawaii, something that I'm trying to affirm and do to be an ally and an advocate for Kanaka that are here on the island that are so oppressed in so, so many ways that are both erased and not talked about in wider culture. You have um, a, a number of icons. Spirit of Aloha is one. Tell me about some of those. Sure. So it, it started, my Hawaiian icon started with Pele, who is the Hawaiian volcano goddess who governs the volcano, the flow of lava, fire and lightning. So I painted her first after coming to Hawaii because I felt like I needed to come. And this is her island, the big island. So she lives in Kilauea's crater. And so I can hike there and run there and see the lava, you know, bubbling out. But in researching her, I started discovering this beautiful pantheon of amazing Hawaiian women and goddesses, whether it's Papahanaumoku, who essentially is the Earth Mother in Hawaii, who kind of birthed the islands into being. There's Hina, the goddess of moon and rain, who also according to some legends, lives at Rainbow Falls on island or lives in the moon. Namaka, who's Pele's sister, they don't get along. She's the goddess of the <laughs> sea. And just these really amazing women in mythology that it seems in my research of different goddesses and women across traditions that the cosmology of saints or women 
goddesses in Hawaii often provide more depth and nuance to the characters of these women. So you have Pele, for example, who is often seen as angry or enraged, but that's an attribute that for many women, they're told that you shouldn't show anger or rage, that it's not feminine or that it's not polite. And so learning more about Pele helps you realize that in order for this island to be born, her rage has to be there because I'm literally standing here on new land and our island grows bigger every day because of Pele, as the lava hardens and eventually sprouts push through, trees grow, fruit is born, and all Aina or land and people is nourished. And so uh, their stories really provide a lot of nuance and power for women to say, yes, you can be nurturing and loving and all of these stereotypical feminine attributes, but you can also be enraged and have righteous indignation and anger and spite sometimes, and that sometimes that's needed in order to be a, a whole person. Rage Resist, uh, one of your icons, a few of them are about resistance. As 2017 was coming to a close, you know, everyone, it seemed, no matter what background you come from, race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, that everyone was saying, like, this was a monumentally sucky year, right? <laughs> um, this prompted me to take some of my icons in a more political direction. So I have uh, the Mothers of Black Lives Matter, the Midwives of Standing Rock, this recent protest goddess whose heart simply says, rage, rise, resist. So I painted her for the Women's March this year and um, went with the Holy Women Icons Project and had prints and coloring pages of her that we were give, giving out to everyone. I had a really poignant moment where we had colored pencils so people could color there or take the coloring page home. And there was a five-year-old girl who kind of saddled up to the corner of the table with the colored pencils and her dad, who was at the march with her. And she's coloring this Rage Rise Resist coloring page. And I was telling her, oh, you know, this is looking really great. You're excellent at coloring. And she reaches in for a turquoise and starts coloring the fist that's thrust into the, into the air of the icon and says, I'm using every color because protest goddesses come in every color. Uh. And that was a really powerful moment for me that we have a lot of things that we need to rage, rise, and resist right now. And I think we have to do that intersectionally. That for me as a queer white woman, it can't just be about other queer white women. That we need to be looking at the way immigrants and refugees, Muslims and Jews, people of color, especially black people with Black Lives Matter. And I think here in Hawaii of Kanaka and Native Hawaiians, that these are stories that we need to lift up. There are things that we need to be resisting and raging and, and fighting for and learning how to be a good advocate and ally. And to do this with art, for me, is the end goal of justice, that, that beauty is, is the goal of justice, because every person deserves to be surrounded by things and food and surrounding and home and people that inspire and and enliven them. And, and ultimately, that's the goal of the Holy Women Icons Project, to create spaces for beauty in everyone's world so that we have the audacity and the power and the resilience to rage and rise and resist, because as you well know, we have a lot to resist right now. Dr. Angela Yarber is the founder and executive director of the Holy Women Icons Project, and her wife, Dr. Elizabeth Lee, is the administrative director of the Holy Women Icons Project. So two quick questions just before we go. One is, tell me a story of how people have responded to some of your icons, and, and then how people can get in touch with you and, and get involved. I would say a really uh, 
amazing story that I had with some of these icons is leading a queer spirituality retreat. And this was actually when I was in the mountains of North Carolina, the last time I talked with you. And having a woman who was in her 60s, maybe 70s, who had not been out for very long as queer and grew up in a tradition that told her she was an abomination and hellbound and all of these things. And to look at an icon of Polly Murray and see reflections of herself and to have tears come to her eyes and realize that she could reconcile her spirituality uh, with her sexuality, that the two didn't have to be mutually exclusive and to say, because she did, I can. And then to get in touch with us, our website, holywomenicons.com, has everything. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, so you can follow us there. We have books and artwork and print for sale, or you can make a donation or just like some of our images online. All of that helps. What an incredible vocation that uh, that you have going here with the Holy Women Icons Project. I think it's very exciting and important and life-affirming, and I appreciate that and appreciate you what you're doing. Thank you. The feeling is mutual. We've now finished the five-part series on revisioning Christianity. Each of my guests provided a different perspective on Christianity's legacy and its future. Find podcasts of each interview at progressivespirit.net. Next week, I welcome Professor Norman Finkelstein to talk about his new book, Gaza, an inquest into its martyrdom. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. Be well.